Well, it's wonderful to be back with you again. Uh, we only get down here one Sunday of a year, it seems like, so I, I don't remember a lot of names whenever I come back. But uh, little by little, you know, I'm starting to, to know names and faces. But it's a great privilege to uh, preach the Word of God to you. Let's turn to Psalm 110 this morning. Very short psalm. This psalm is a messianic psalm. That is, it's one that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, a prophecy. And it's quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. So Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ as a priest. As a priest. We sing this song... I think maybe Fanny Crosby wrote it, Crown Him, Crown Him, Prophet and Priest and King. And I remember one time it dawned on me, I I began to think, is that really scriptural? And so I began to study this, and I realized the Lord, yes, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ was a prophet. In fact, He was a prophet like Moses, and there's a whole teaching about and we. I actually debated it's a wonderful uh, subject to consider the Lord Jesus Christ as a prophet. He was the prophet. Uh, But He's also a priest and He's also a king. And right here in this psalm that we just read, we see Him as king. He's sitting at God's right hand until all of His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule! in the midst of your enemies. That's a king. Uh, Not only is he a king, but he is the only real king that has ever been. All other kings are just little men that can die if they get a little bug or something in their body. He's the real king. And he is a priest. And it says here in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest. Not only is he a priest, he's a priest forever. And then these mysterious words, he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And as we uh, come to the New Testament, a lot of you remember that these words are specifically quoted in the book of Hebrews, that the Lord Jesus Christ was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And actually, Hebrews 
is the only book in the New Testament that specifically calls the Lord Jesus a priest. That's kind of unusual. But the concept is everywhere. We have uh, Jesus Himself saying that the Son of Man has come to give His life as a ransom for many. Uh, This is My blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. That's the work of a priest. John the Baptist sees Him. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There He is the sacrifice. And uh, Paul talks about He loved me and delivered Himself up for me. That's the work of a priest and delivering up Himself as a sacrifice. Uh, Peter says Christ died for our sins once for all. Uh, They're just for the unjust in order that He might bring us to God. And so according to the Bible, the Lord Jesus was a priest. Now, before we go any further, we need to ask ourselves, what's a priest? And as I've thought about this whole thing, you know, I've gotten used to the idea of priest by, since I became a Christian, learned about the Old Testament. Um, and we run into this whole concept in other religions and what have you. But really, the whole idea of a priest is really a weird, strange thing. I want to talk to you about it a little bit. First of all, what is a priest? Before we read the Bible definition, I want to read the definition uh, from a dictionary, this typical definition, dictionary definition. A priest is a religious leader authorized to perform the sacred rituals of a religion, especially as a mediatory agent between humans and one or more deities. They also have the authority or power to administer religious rites. That doesn't sound very good, does it? In particular, rites of sacrifice to and propitiation of a deity or deities. Now, before we go any further, I want to talk just a definition of propitiation. And uh, that's going to be the last part of the message we're going to really center in on that. Propitiation is to remove wrath by offering a gift or sacrifice to placate, pacify, or appease. So these priests, and we're talking about all over the world, there's all kinds of priests. These priests offer sacrifices to appease or placate angry gods. And uh, these priests appear all over the world in all kinds of religions, wearing the most ridiculous and even evil costumes and saying all kinds of mumbo-jumbo and gibberish and shedding, I think of this, shedding buckets of blood. All down through history, this has been the case. Animal and human blood. Let me give you some quotes. In historical polytheism, a priest administers the sacrifice to a deity, often in highly elaborate ritual. Ritual. Priestesses in antiquity often performed sacred prostitution. You talk about a contradiction in terms. Concerning human sacrifice, it says this, Human sacrifice is the act of killing one or more humans 
usually as an offering to a deity as part of a ritual. Now let me just give you some historical things. In the reconsecration of the great uh, pyramid of Tenochtitlan, uh, in 1487, the Aztecs reported that they killed about 80,400 prisoners over the course of four days. Four days. 80,000. Some say the figures are exaggerated. They say only 10,000. 10,000 people in four days. Can you imagine this? This is human sacrifice. Uh, others say that the Aztecs only killed normally between 2,000 and 20,000 people per year in their human sacrifices. That's, that's uh, between 5 and 55 if you take the low number or the high number. Think of 5. So you, every day, 5 human beings killed in sacrifice, or 55 a day. And uh, the same source that I was reading says that human sacrifice was practiced on a much larger scale in ancient China. According to uh, Roman and Greek sources, the Phoenicians sacrificed infants to their gods. And in a single child cemetery, archaeologists have discovered an estimated 20,000 urns of human, of human sacrifice of infants. Uh, human sacrifice was also practiced in Scandinavia, in Crete, and many other places, people were killed in different ways depending on the god that was being placated. Concerning animal sacrifice, now time would fail me if I talked about that, the history of that. Uh, when I was in Lebanon this, uh, I think it was February, uh, the brother there took me to Heliopolis, which is a, an old uh, Roman city. And they have a temple of Zeus there, the high temple and it really is high. And you go up there, and what's left of the ruins, there is a channel about that big around that goes from the altar down the side of the temple, down like this, it goes along the pavement, and runs back over to the gods. And this channel was for blood. There were rivers of blood going down out of that altar that the Romans were sacrificed in the temple of Zeus, or Jupiter, and I guess the Romans called him. So that's one example. Um, let's look at the present day. In 2014, in Indonesia alone, 800,000 animals were sacrificed in one Muslim festival. 800,000. In Turkey... 2,500,000 sheep, cows, and goats per year. Still going on. In Pakistan, 10 million per year. And there's a quote. Countries such as Saudi Arabia transport nearly a million animals every year for sacrifice to Mina, which is a city near Mecca. A million a year. I got a picture of this going on. Can, do we imagine this still? These particular sacrifices, a lot of them <clears throat> are, are somewhat like feasts, but they're still religious 
in nature. And there are many other sacrifices still going on in other religions around the world. So just to sum it up, the overall impression that I have anyway that the priests and sacrifices as they appear in human history and in the religions of the world <clears throat> is something weird, ugly, perverted, distorted. I mean, it's, there's something that's ugly about this. I mean, and, it, and we have no comprehension really when we talk about slaughtering uh, a thousand men as sacrifices or 80,000 men in four days or a million animals. I mean, there's no comprehension. Now, <clears throat> let's look then at the Bible definition of a priest. If you're shocked by any of this, that's what I want because it is shocking. I mean, it is shocking. Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself." And no one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So a priest is someone taken from among men who is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices to bring men to God. It's the opposite of a prophet. A prophet is somebody that comes from this direction down. He comes from God. God puts His words in the prophet's mouth. The prophet comes to you and he talks to you and he tells you God's words. The priest comes from the other direction. He comes from among men and he goes and he... He offers a sacrifice that makes it possible to bring men with Him to God. That's the biblical idea. <clears throat> and I think that explains why the priests and the sacrifices of world history and world religion are so messed up. Where are you going to get a man who can come from among men and move in the Godward direction? and take you to God along with Himself. He can't even take Himself to God. And where's He going to get a sacrifice that's sufficient to pay for His sin? And that's why people have even... They've killed their babies. They think, well, maybe that'll please. And you see, all of this is a testimony to the fact that men know that there's something wrong. They know that they're sinners. They know that somehow things need to be made right. And the fact that it's happening all over the world, it's amazing, isn't it? Men know there's something wrong. They know that they've sinned. They know that they're separated from God. Priests have to do with putting away sin. They have to do with sacrifice. They have to do with angry deities. Angry deities 
sins that have offended those deities and sacrifices to get right with those deities. Now, some of you guys are theologians. You've read maybe you know about Charles Finney's governmental theory of the atonement. He says the atonement was governmental. Well, you're done already as soon as you try to start with that because priests don't fit into governments. Governments have to do with crimes. Priests have to do with sins against God. You see, so you can put out of your mind any governmental theory of the atonement. There is such thing. Priests don't fit into governments. But we're talking about men trying to get back to God who is offended. And with that, I want us to go to Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 to 26. And we're going to spend the rest of our time here and we'll particularly center in on the idea of propitiation. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that is a, to say the least, is a very compact statement. I mean, do you just read down through that, you know, half asleep? Oh yeah, I understand all that. You've got to really get into this. But it's simple, beloved, and we're going to go back through it after we talk for a while. And I hope it will become clear. The word propitiate means to remove wrath by offering a gift or sacrifice, to placate, pacify, or appease. It's different than the word expiate. Some translations have expiate. You expiate sin. Expiation terminates on a thing, sin. You've got to put it away. You've got to atone for it. Propitiation terminates on a person. In other words, there's an offended deity and you propitiate that person. That's the difference in the idea here. Um, John Owen brings out four elements in propitiation. One, an offense to be removed. Two, a person offended who needs to be pacified. Three, an offender guilty of the offense. And four, a sacrifice or some other means of making atonement for the offense. So let me give you some examples of pacifying or placating, uh, appeasing. One is uh, the case of Jacob and Esau. You remember Jacob's going back to meet his brother Esau. And he divides up a bunch of the cattle and different things, and he sends them in groups. You remember that? 
he sends this first group and they and they he says now when he asks you who are you who do you belong to you say this is, we belong to your brother Jacob and he's sending this as a gift to you and that goes on and goes on and goes on and the, the verse says Jacob says perhaps in this way I will appease I will appease I'll placate my brother Esau that's the idea Taking away the wrath, trying to give a gift. In this case, sometimes husbands try to do that. They try to appease, they placate, they propitiate their wives by giving them a gift of some kind, a flower or a rose or something. Uh, this is when somebody's been offended and you give them a gift that pacifies them. Now, God's thing is different than this. And we're going to talk about that. Whenever you think of the word appease, think of it in a worldly sense, appeasing. What do you think of? I, I usually think of the, you know, the god of the volcano is angry. And you've got to take some beautiful young maiden and throw her in to appease that god. You know, he's angry for some silly reason, and uh, this will get the volcano to quiet down. And from what I've read, I think that it's accurate to say that literally hundreds of thousands of human beings have died under that idea, trying to placate. These figures that I read to you, mostly young men and young women, sometimes older people, to appease angry gods. Men know they know they're guilty, they know that something's wrong, and the best answer the world has to offer is that. And other people come along and they ridicule that. They look at that and it's, it, it's loathsome to them. And they come and they ridicule Christianity. They say, do you really believe that God is like, you know, He's mad for some reason? And He's requiring a human sacrifice? You know, Jesus has to die. That's the caricature that the world has. And what I want you to see is, is that the biblical idea of a priest and of a sacrifice and of propitiation is totally different than that. Okay? That's what I want us to see. How is it different? Three big ways it's different. There's a parallel, yes. There's, a, there's an offense, there's an offended person, there's a sacrifice, and so on. But when the Bible uses the language of propitiation, you see, we've got to get our ideas of all this from the Bible not from all this mess that we see out here. And so if you get your ideas from the Bible, what's the first big difference in the biblical teaching and this is what we see out in the world? The first big difference is the nature of God's wrath. God's wrath in the Bible is a holy thing. It is a pure thing. It is a good thing. It's not a selfish fit of emotion. It's not that God flies off. You know, He gets mad because of something. That isn't it. When the Bible talks about the wrath of God, it is talking about His holy determination to punish sin and to balance the scales of justice. Beloved, when was it? Last fall, Mona and I were in Auschwitz. There were... They, when they came in there, there were 14,000 pounds of human, of women's hair. 
14,000 pounds of women's hair that they were using to make sacks out of. And those people were burned in those crematoriums. Now, what kind of a God would God be if He looked at that happening and He just said, ho-hum, you know, boys will be boys, no big deal. You see, if you want a God without wrath, you're asking for a God who's not worth worshiping. And so what we have in the Bible, we have a God who can he cannot look at that kind of stuff and let it go. Not only that, He can't look at what you've done and let it go. Because He's absolutely holy, and the scales of justice must be balanced. And it's an amazing thing. I mean, sometimes in the Bible, you're reading along like there in the Old Testament. God says, if you find a dead body out here in, in the woods somewhere, let's suppose... And this guy's head is smashed in. You know, somebody's killed him. Somebody killed that person. God says, and you don't know who it was. God says that pollutes the land. That's got to be. That's got to be punished. That's got to be paid for. And they would measure which city of refuge was the closest to that body. And then they'd have the people come out from that city and offer sacrifice. They said, we didn't know about this. Why does there need to be a sacrifice? Because God says that blood, unpunished sin, pollutes the land. And what it means is, is that every evil thing that I've done has to be paid for. It can't just be swept under the rug. It can't be let go. Because our God is a God of absolute justice and righteousness. Now you see how different that is than the idea, oh, the God in the volcano is angry because this, that, or the other. We're talking about something holy. This is a holy thing. God would not be God. He wouldn't be worth worshiping if He wasn't like this. He's determined that every sin is going to be punished. Every wrong is going to be made right. Everything is going to be totally equal and leveled out for all eternity. Eventually, it's going to happen. So that's the first difference between the worldly idea of propitiation and the biblical idea. You start thinking of the wrath of God, it's not just a little selfish bit of emotion. It's not flying off the handle. It's a holy, constant determination to balance the scales of justice. Alright? Second difference is the nature of the sacrifice. Why was the death of Christ propitiatory. Why did it turn away wrath? You know, throwing the young maiden in the volcano, what does that do? Well, it's like the angry volcano god wants blood, you know. Well, that's not, the, that's not at all the basis of propitiation in the Bible. Why was the death of Christ propitious of the wrath of God? Not because God was some kind of a bloodthirsty monster that wants blood. That's, that's blasphemy. God Himself abominates that kind of thing. Why was it propitiatory? Because Christ didn't just die. He died for sin. He died in payment of sin. That's why that wrath is removed. He died in our place. How does that work? Well, you have to understand this word impute. And it's a little word that's wonderful. Paul... He, you remember in Philemon, 
There's a little book in the Bible called Philemon. There was an escaped slave named Onesimus. And Paul, that slave, Onesimus, had become a Christian, and Paul was sending him back to his master, Philemon. And he said this. He said, he said receive him. He's, more, he's, he's a true brother in the Lord but now. But he said, receive him as you would me. And if he owes you anything... Impute that to me, or charge that to my account. That's Philip or Philemon, verse eighteen. Charge that to my account. I don't know how the. I don't know if you all use the ESV. How that is? How is it in there? Charge it to my account. It's one little word. Impute. And so charge it to my account. So what's Paul saying? Paul doesn't really owe Philemon the debt. Maybe Onesimus stole $100 from him. So it's not Paul's debt, but he says, if he owes you anything, I'm going to pay for it. Charge that to my account. Put that on my account. Now, once it's charged to Paul's account, now it is his debt. It's not, it's not Onesimus' debt anymore. It's Paul's debt. Now, beloved, that's what happened when our sins were imputed to Christ. Christ comes along, He says, it's not my debt, but I want it. I take it as my debt. Impute that to me. Put it on my account. And now it's actually transferred over there. And when He dies, He actually pays the debt. Just like Paul, He says, impute that to my account. He puts that $100 on Paul's account. Paul sends $100 in the mail. It's paid. Now, beloved, what I'm saying is, God does not, when He justifies you, He looks in your book and He sees that your debt actually got transferred over here and it's actually been paid. He's not pretending that, that your debt is paid. He sees that it actually has been paid and He makes a declaration as a judge based on the reality of the fact that your debt has actually been paid. That's why the death of Christ turns away the wrath of God. It's propitious. He's propitiated. His wrath is... What's His wrath? Determination to balance the scales of justice. Determination to punish sin. And justice is satisfied. He dies in my place and He pays for my sin. See, the great problem, again, in justification, the great problem is how can God justify me and still be just Himself? The Bible says that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination. You get a judge. Here's a judge sitting in there. Some guy has murdered your wife and family. And the judge, uh, he appears before the judge, and the judge says, well, I'm a very loving judge. I declare you to be righteous. That's wicked. Any judge that would do that is wicked. God is not like that. He, he cannot justify you and me unless, it's really the, unless the sin really has been paid for. And so when He justifies, He does it and remains just at the same time. So, our sins were imputed to Christ. His death was a satisfaction of justice. And He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having been made a curse for us. 
That's what's happening in the death of Christ. So it wasn't a human sacrifice in that sense. You see, it wasn't at all. It's totally different. What's the third difference between the biblical idea of propitiation? Well, it's totally different as to who provides the sacrifice. Who provides the sacrifice? Picture this pagan idea of appeasement. This God of the volcano, He doesn't provide the sacrifice. There's no idea of that. But in the Bible, God Himself provides for the removal of His own wrath. God so loved the world that He provides a way that His righteousness can be satisfied. It's an amazing thing. We have a hard time understanding that because in the human realm, almost all anger is unrighteous. And, and almost all love is unrighteous, really. So-called love is selfish. It means I love myself. You, you know, that's one thing we try to tell the college girls. This old line, I love you, and usually that means you're pretty and I love myself. That's a, that's a that's what it means. But our ideas of love and, and of anger and of wrath are so messed up, we can't imagine how God could have wrath and love at the same time. But He so loved the objects of His wrath that He made a way for it to be removed so that they could be saved. That's the Gospel. God Himself provides a way. God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. Why? He gave His Son... To remove his wrath. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 5, 8, and 9, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. He so loved us that he saved us from his wrath. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, a wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. So, even in the Old Testament sacrifices, this was true. People didn't just get together and say, Hey, let's try offering a lamb you know, and see if that will work. God was the one that gave them that whole sacrificial system to to point them to Christ. So Abraham says God will provide for Himself the Lamb. That's that's exactly what happened. Now, back to Romans 3, 24-26. Just these three verses here, 24, 25, and 26. And we'll start with verse 26 and work backwards. It says, For the demonstration I say of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's that saying? So God gave Christ as a sacrifice so that He might be just at the same time that He justifies us. You see that? That's the purpose. Simple, isn't it? He gave Christ that he, so that He might be just at the same time that He can justify a sinner because that person's sins have actually been paid for. Now, go up to the verse above. 
Uh, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood uh, through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. Now what's that talking about? Well, you go back into the Old Testament times, they were offering those bulls and goats. Now let me ask you, is it possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin? Absolutely not. So what it means is, is there, God is saying, I mean, people like Abraham got justified. How in the world did he get justified if there's not a sacrifice been made yet? God is passing over the sins previously committed. All down through the, the centuries, those sins are really being rolled forward. They've never been paid for. And it looks like that God is saving people on the basis of, not on the satisfaction of justice, just the blood of bulls and goats. I can't take away sin. It looked like God had been unrighteous and unjust in passing over all those sins. And so, the time has now come, and he says, he, Paul says, he was, Christ was set forth, He was displayed publicly as a propitiation. Well, have you ever thought about this? Why couldn't Christ just die in a closet somewhere? You know, why does He have to be out on a cross? Well, He puts Him out there on a cross, hangs Him up. He's got, he's got thunder and lightning and darkness covering the whole earth and the earth shaking, what's he, what's he doing? God is pointing, He's drawing attention to it. He said, look, I'm doing it. I'm righteous. I'm paying for it. Don't miss what's going on here. You see that? So God displays Him publicly as a wrath-removing sacrifice through His blood because for all these years He passed over all those sins that have been committed. Now He's saying, look, I'm paying for it now for real. It's paid in full. Jesus says, it's finished. Alright? Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace. It's free from our side. We don't pay for it. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He does pay for it. And it's expensive. It's costly for Him. It's free for us but it's costly for Him. And so, verse 22, it says, we receive this righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift given to us. So, I want to say a couple things here before we quit. Think about how we started this whole thing. This whole idea of priests and sacrifice and think of all those heathen priests, so-called, and all the human sacrifice, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and all the animal sacrifices, tens of millions that have died on various altars down through history. And this is a shocking thing. Not one of those sacrifices did anything. Isn't that amazing? And not one of those people was a true priest. There's only been one priest 
One priest in all the history of mankind, there's only been one real priest. Even the Old Testament priests, none of them ever put away sin. They were shadows. There's only one. By nature of the whole thing, there can only be one. And that one priest was taken from among men. He had to become a man. Taken from among men, ordained for men and things pertaining to God. And he was the one... He's the only one, and there's only been one sacrifice that ever put away any sins. And it did it not as some kind of human sacrifice, but it did it as taking our sins imputed to Him and paying the penalty for our sins. That's why it put away sin. The sacrifice of Himself. You know, if we could somehow wipe out from history, all of the sacrifice, all the so-called priests, all those lies. And if we just even were left with the Old Testament, you still have something that's pretty ugly. Thousands of animals dying. God God wanted it that way. uh, Paul Washer told me one time in Peru they killed a bunch of goats to feed men at a conference up in the jungle. I don't, I don't remember how many it was. Maybe, I don't know, 10 or 20 goats. He said there was blood all over everywhere. I mean, pools of blood. If you all have ever been involved in slaughtering one animal, there's pools of blood. It was a mess even in the Bible. So God, what's He saying? He's wanting us to get to the idea, this thing is not pretty. We just talk about, you know, our sins imputed to Christ. He paid for it and so on. I mean, God's speaking to us in those buckets of blood. Even the ones in the Bible. This was a great cost. It was a real sacrifice. And sin is a terrible thing that has to be paid for. So... Christ's sacrifice was a propitiation because it actually satisfied justice and righteousness. It was provided by God Himself. And the wrath that was removed was not some kind of peevish anger, but it was a holy determination to make every wrong right. Now, that's the foundation. Now we're ready for the application. And I'm not going to give that today, but there's a lot of applications of this. I just mentioned a couple of them. One of them is, and Hebrews brings this out a lot, that we can come to God with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience because the blood really washed away sin. Beloved, if you're a Christian, you may have some horrible memories of your sinful past, but I want to tell you this, they're not floating around, and those sins are not floating around in the air. Every one of those sins has come down on the Lord Jesus Christ and it's actually paid for. Amen. Actually paid for. And so you sometimes the devil will bring to your mind, well, what about that thing you did and you, you feel so sick over it? But you remember that sin Jesus bore and paid for in full. And it's gone. It's washed away. The blood cleanses us. From all sin. Second thing, as we think about priests, you know the Bible says a lot about this. There's got to, uh, 
you, you need to take these things, if you want to think about them further, you need to look. There's a whole lot more we could say. But think about this. When God is wanting to teach us about this whole idea of a priest, He has that high priest in the Old Testament who's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has him wear certain clothes. He doesn't wear some old dirty, tattered rags, does he? He wears certain clothes, and and those clothes he's got, he's got on his shoulders the names of God's people. He says he'll carry them before the Lord continually. That's what God's doing. That's what our priest is doing. He's carrying us before the Lord continually. He's we are constantly sustained by grace because of the fact that He ever lives to make intercession for us. His presence in heaven is a constant reminder that our sins have been paid for in full. And God's carrying us all the time. Christ is carrying us all the time. But what else? Well, in this breast piece of judgment, in there was the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly what they were, but it's something that you tossed in order to determine the will of God. Sort of, we have dice today. This might have been some kind of flat stones or something. But they would cast the Urim and they would get a yes or a no or no answer. And so, amazingly, they put this. God says, now I want, I want all the names put right here too. He already had the names on his shoulders, but he says, I want the names here in this breast breastplate or breast piece of judgment. Now it's not judgment in the sense of wrath, but it's judgment in the sense of guidance, decision. You know the judges of Israel, they gave direction, they ruled. And some even translate this the breast piece of decision. But what's the idea here? Well the idea is is that God is continually carrying, Christ is continually carrying before God in this breastplate of decision, all of our names. In other words, our guidance, our direction, God giving us wise counsel and what to do in this and that situation. He says, He's the Lord Jesus, our high priest, is carrying that before God continually. And so, you're trying to figure out, what should I do in this situation? Now he's carrying that before God continually. He'll show you the right way. A lot of times we have the idea, you know, when we read about the pillar of fire in the Old Testament, the cloud, it says that it would come down for one day. Sometimes they'd stay, and then they'd pack up the next morning. It would move out. Sometimes it says it would stay for a year. And just so you, I mean, a year, every day you're thinking maybe, maybe the pillar will move. And it doesn't. You're there for a year. You start thinking, well, I guess we're going to settle down here. The next morning, <laughs> it's all the way out. All right. Sometimes you read that and you, you know, you think, wow, I wish, I wish it was that clear for me of God guiding. You know, He just shows us. That's getting the wrong end of the stick. Because what God is saying to us is this. He's saying, look, if I am so concerned about the guidance of my Old Testament people, most of whom didn't even know the Lord, how much more am I going to lead you? He'll carry the judgment, the decision of the children of Israel on his heart continually before the Lord. Those are just two applications. 
uh, that the Bible gives us from this whole matter of Christ being our high priest. There are others. But if I could leave anything with you today, I just wish I could leave with you that there's only been one priest in history. And there's only been one sacrifice. And it's, and it's a sacrifice that gets the job done. Amen.